Bibles, if you now, if you would now, to uh, Philippians chapter one. Philippians chapter one. Last week we we studied one of the most sublime passages in all of Scripture. In verse number twenty-one of this chapter, Paul wrote, "For to me to live is Christ, to die is gain." And last week I said it's very difficult to get a handle on the depth of Paul's meaning in that verse. And I've never actually met a person who lived up to, that, to the full potential of Paul's statement. If you take that verse and divide it in half, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain, and you divide the verse in half, which part, if you think about it, which part of that verse is the most difficult to do? Is it the first part, for me to live is Christ, or the second part, to die is gain? Most of us would probably think, well, the dying part, that seems to be very hard. I mean, uh, uh, most of us don't have dying or don't like to think about dying and don't put that very high on our to-do list. You might have a list on your computer of things to do. Dying's not one of those things on the list. And even if we're not even talking about a slow, torturous death, there's not any of us who like to think about dying. And yet, as we look at this and we think about the Apostle Paul as, as he speaks here, Dying is not a real problem for him. And in dying, you might say, I know exactly what I'm getting when I die. I mean, when I die, everything is settled for me. Uh, The Bible calls death for a Christian nothing more than falling asleep. I know that when I die, I'm immediately in the presence of the Lord. So dying is not really the hardest part of this because that's God taking care of me. And when I die, that doesn't require any input from me. God handles everything. But when I think about living, that's a little bit different story. He says, for me to live is Christ. And when we think about that, there is some input that's required to it. There's something that's required that I have to do in living. And here you see the influence of verse number 6, Philippians 1 verse 6. And and I said, well, keep coming back to that verse. Perseverance is required. And although I am certainly assured of my perseverance... And that is God who's working through me, yet there's more to do in living than there is in dying. Now, this evening, we're going to look at the next verses following verse number 21, and we're going to see another piece of Paul's great attitude about living and dying. And what we have here is Paul's balance between the two. And quite honestly, when he thought about living or dying, he says, I I really can't decide what I want to do. I've decided I just can't decide. I don't know if I want to go or if I want to stay. We're going to talk about why he says that. Let's stand, please, and look at Philippians chapter 1, beginning at verse number 21. For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. But if I live in the flesh, this is the fruit of my labor. Yet what I shall choose, I wot not, or I don't know which to choose. For I am in a strait betwixt two, having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to abide in the flesh is more needful for you. And having this confidence, I know that I shall abide and continue with you all for your furtherance and joy of faith, that your rejoicing may be more abundant in Jesus Christ for me by my coming to you again. Heavenly Father, thank you for uh, the words that we've read tonight. Thank you for each one who's come here this evening. Lord, just open up our, our hearts to your word. Help us to understand. And Lord, may we really get a better feeling for this for this statement that Paul makes, to live as Christ and to die as gain. May we understand better why there's a dilemma in Paul's life over this issue. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. 
The first thing that I notice about Paul's attitude when he writes about living or dying is the selflessness that's attached to it. Because when you think about living and dying, those are very personal issues. And yet Paul is not so concerned about how it is for him personally. The real uh, final decision or the final determination, the outcome of this, of this is which one of these two things best benefits the ones that God has called me to serve. And if we go back to Paul's initial calling, you remember that he said, I was separated from my mother's womb for this purpose. I'm called out to be a preacher of the gospel. And so whatever God sees fit to do in my life, whatever the outcome of my life might be, wherever God sees fit to put me, then that's where I want to be. I just simply want to do what God wants, and I want to be living or dying where God expects me to be. Now, in this letter to the Philippians, we're really trying to discover how is it that Paul lives a life of peace? How does he have contentment when the present circumstances under which he lives are so dire? Prison, we really don't think, is conducive to the type of thinking that Paul gives us in this, cha- in this book. There are far too many Christians who really look at life as something that we must endure. Life is just something that we have to go through while we're waiting for Jesus to come back or waiting to die. And so there's so many Christians that have this woe is me syndrome. And that is, just get me through life. Just let me get through this thing. And then I'll gladly die because heaven is all where it's at. Well, the fact of the matter is that that right now, the Bible teaches that we're designed for this world. God doesn't uh, take us out of this world immediately. And he doesn't, he doesn't leave us in the world just because he wants to us endure a little hardship and then we'll be able to appreciate heaven so much better when we get there. That's not the attitude or not the idea that Paul uh, and the Bible gives us about life. The idea is not that heaven is escape from this present life. And if you're a Christian who thinks that way and, and, and all you think about is my life is drudgery, I've got problems, then you're going to be a miserable Christian. And you'll make people around you miserable as well. This life ought to be joyful because the Bible teaches us that we have eternal life abiding in us right now. God has something good for us in this life. He has a purpose for us to fulfill. He's left us here. He's given us a job to do. And so fulfilling God's purpose is the best thing for us. And heaven is really not gain over something bad. A Christian life is not something bad. Heaven is better by far. And we'll find out that Paul says that in verse number 23. But Paul does not mean it in the sense that he's trying to escape the worst that there is for the best that there is. Really, Paul is in a dilemma because what he's doing when he talks about living and dying is that he's leaving something good, leaving something good for something that's better. And if you don't get that picture about life, then you're just... You're just going to be upset by every curveball that life throws you. You're going to be complaining and bitter all the time because there are certain problems that come in your life. But God has a purpose for life. God's working through you. And Paul's attitude about this is, I can't decide between this good life of serving Christ here and a better life that I'll have with Christ in heaven. So his idea is never that I want to go to Christ, I want to see Christ because I want to escape this life, but rather my hope of eternal life encourages me that I might be able to serve Christ better while I'm in this life. Now, I hope that comes across to you correctly and you understand that, what I'm saying, because this is really the difference between enduring life and enjoying life. 
Now, we're going to look here at this passage and see if we can, we can identify a sweet dilemma rather than a bitter one for the Apostle Paul. So first tonight, let's talk about the desire of Paul's present life. Trying to distill his life down into bullet points is very difficult because there's only one goal. His desire is Christ. For me to live is Christ. That's a very simple statement. And yet, we learned in our last lesson that it's not so simple to fulfill. And probably, there's nobody that's actually lived up to that statement uh, from the time of the Apostle Paul. So, in a few verses here, he does give us, though, some direction about his desire. And why he says such a thing, for me to live as Christ, to die as gain, and why there is a dilemma between living and dying. Now, first of all, I would say that the desire for Paul's life, or his desire in the present life, number one, is to increase their faith. To increase the faith of these Philippian people. In verse number 25, he says, And having this confidence, I know that I shall abide and continue with you all for your furtherance and joy of faith. As we think about this, if, if Paul had the attitude, if he's sitting there in prison, he's thinking, why is this happening to me? Why am I placed like this? I've never done anything to deserve such kind of treatment. If Paul had a defeatist mentality, so that's what overtook him, if he decided to be sullen and reserved about what had happened to him in that prison, if he just sat there like, I'm going to wait till my fate is played out, then certainly Paul would have left the impression with the people that he ministered to, here's what you have to look forward to. Here's what your life is as a Christian. Things go bad. Things are, are, are get, get terrible for you. And all through your Christian life, you try to do the best that you can, but in the end, your life really ends up in the toilet. Paul can't leave that kind of impression. He has to be strong for these people. He has to be encouraging he has to be upbeat, even in that experience. So that when they look at him, they see that his hope is so sure that they know that everything that comes into his life and what comes into their life, they'll be able to get through that. They'll be able to endure everything that, th- that life throws at them. Every action that Paul did was designed to increase the faith of these people because he's the leader. And if the leader can't be strong, you can't expect the followers to be strong. All of us are familiar with some of Paul's favorite terminology. In the book of 1 Corinthians that we've been studying on Sunday mornings, we see there that Paul talks about Christians being edified. He talks about, let all things be done to edifying. And and he's talking about there uh, comparing the Christian life to something that has to be built. That's That's a reference to building things, to edifies, to build up. And so he tells us that there there has been a foundation in our lives that's been laid by our faith in Christ, and we're to continue through our lives to build upon that foundation that is laid. Sometimes he talks about that in reference to the church. Sometimes he's speaking to the individual Christian. And he tells us personal faith has to be built. It has to be be, uh, put in Christ, and it has to be raised up. It It has to be an edifying thing. Our lives must be built. But when he talks about the, uh, the church, he means it has to continue as the pillar and the ground of the truth. The church must be strong. It has, to be, it has to be continually be built up. And so he's teaching us that we have to be anchored to something that's strong. We have to have our faith in something that's strong and the anchor is fastened in a strong place so that we don't drift with the currents. So one of the things that Paul did was to present an example before the people of strength, strength in faith. And so he said in Ephesians 5, verse 1, Be ye followers, therefore followers of God as dear children, 
And then he says to the, first Corinthians, to the Corinthians, Be ye followers of me, even as I also am of Christ. So that's, that, that's where his life is, is, is the direction that it's taking. He's the example. He believes in leading by example. And so the faith of these people could be built by looking at Paul. So if he can be strong in the faith while he's sitting in the prison, certainly others can be strong in the faith when they're free and when they're outside. And should they ever come to the place where Paul is and go through the same thing, they'd find out. It's not impossible to serve God and to have faith in bad situations. You can be strong in the faith. You know, that's an amazing thing about Christianity. Persecution has never been a means to destroy our faith. Persecution has never worked. Things that do work are things like infiltration of false hopes, false doctrine that's preached, false expectations that you often hear by the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel, that does more to tear down a Christian than persecution ever will do. Paul said, for me to stay among you and to lead by example means that I can increase your faith. And there we see that God has ways of working sometimes that we really just don't understand. The means of, of God's working, uh, we have the idea it can't work that way. I mean, I mean, if God does this, it's going to produce the opposite effect of what God desires. But in fact, what God does many times, he used those things to increase our faith, to build our faith that we think simply won't work. Persecution is one of those things. And so he allowed that persecution, he allows trouble in order to build faith. It doesn't destroy faith. And when you think about it, when is it that people most depend upon God? Do you depend on God in the good times? Most of us don't. When the times are good, we don't even think about God very much. Uh, We just accept it as you go on and never think about the blessings that God has given us and that there's no trouble in our life. But the first bad thing that happens, people get on their knees, they begin to pray, they get back with God. And so God knows exactly what he's doing. He knows how to increase our faith. And the great thing about it is those trials and tribulations don't tear us down. It always brings us out better in the end. And that's exactly what happened with Job. In the book of Job, it says, So the Lord blessed the latter end of Job more than his beginning. And so always remember that. When things are going wrong in your life, that God never leaves. He never forsakes his children. And so if it's God's desire that Paul should stay in this life, he's perfectly willing to do that because that would increase their faith. Secondly, Paul's desire for his life that he would bear more fruit. He desires to bear more fruit. Now, here's really just a simple matter of mathematics. The longer that the tree lives, the more fruit that it will bear. In, in verse number 22, it says, But if I live in the flesh, this is the fruit of my labor. And I think there's two ways that we could take Paul's statement there. The first one is for Christians in Philippi. I mean, people that are already in the faith. Save people. And Paul's labor among them, his fruit, would be to produce a stronger church. It means more help for God's people. So it's beneficial for them if Paul lives because he can give them more of the word. And would we have trouble believing that? I mean, certainly that would be true. If the Apostle Paul was alive today and he was standing here as your teacher rather than me, wouldn't that be a wonderful thing? Certainly it would. He could build a strong church. I'd gladly step aside for the benefits of the knowledge the Apostle Paul had. So the fruit of Paul's labor is a strong, vibrant church. 
And it's really kind of remarkable as we were studying on Sunday night when we think about uh, Jesus when he sends a, a message to the church at Ephesus in the book of Revelation that there was a church that while Paul was ministering among the church, in that church, it was a strong church. He was able to deliver good, solid doctrine to them. They, they understood it. He expected they would, they would digest that doctrine. They would learn from it. But then 40 years later, when, when Jesus gives the message to the church, now the church is in danger of losing their status as one of the Lord's churches. So certainly we could say the fruit of Paul's labor, being in that church at the Philippi, would be to produce a stronger church. So truly, we could say, uh, for, for those people, it was needful for, for Paul to continue the ministry. There would be fruit for his labor because they would have a strong church. But that's not all that it means. It's not just for saved people. The longer that Paul lives, the more people will come to know Christ. Now, you may say, well, that's not what you said in a message about a couple of weeks ago. And I want you to understand very clearly what I'm saying. Whether Paul lives or dies, it's not going to increase or diminish the total numbers of people that will be saved. That can't change. But what it does do is it means that his personal tree would bear the fruit. And so Paul was a man who always bore fruit. I mean, he was witnessing, he was, he was giving the gospel, and so personally, he would bear more fruit for Christ if he lives. Now, obviously, God has his purposes. It's not as if, as if God's uh, telling us that, wow, I, I just wish that I could get Paul out of that prison. I wish there was something I could do about that to get him out because I need my servant out there to witness to people and win more people to me. If Paul thought that, then he wouldn't be writing from, a, from an attitude of hope. He'd be writing from an attitude of hopelessness. He very well knows that God's in control of everything. And it wasn't uncommon for God to, to speak to Paul and tell him that he was going to go through trouble. And through that trouble, he would keep him and his ministry would still be effective. You remember before Paul uh, went to the city of Jerusalem, I mean, before this whole episode of, of him being taken uh, and, and sent to Rome as a prisoner, Paul, Paul was already warned of that. God, God showed him that that would happen. There was a prophet by the name of Agabus and came and gave him that information. This is in Acts chapter 21. It says, And as we tarried there many days, there came down from Judea a certain prophet named Agabus, and when he was coming to us, he took Paul's girdle and bound his own hands and feet and said, Thus saith the Holy Ghost, so shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man that owneth this girdle and shall deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Paul already knew it was going to happen. So he went down to Jerusalem fully expecting that he was going to experience prison. He would be delivered into the hands of the Gentiles. And that was God's method of getting him to Rome. So why did God decide to do it that way? Is that so Paul could enjoy a long rest on a ship all the way to Rome, and then when he gets to prison, he could lay back there and just kind of relax and have no work to do? No. The only thing that the prison experience did was to change the focus of the people that Paul would minister to. So now he's ministering to, to guards that keep him, those that could come into the house while he was a prisoner there, and God had a purpose in that. And Paul knew that God was always in control of that. Wherever his ministry was, no matter what problems there are, he can have an effective ministry. So living for Paul is desirous. And he doesn't call death gain because I need to get out of a bad life. He has a good life for Christ. And what he's doing is just moving from the good to the better, if that's what Christ chooses. And so, more fruit 
means more reward for him when he does get into heaven. So why else then would Paul have a desire for the present life? Well, thirdly, to teach them further. Look at verse 25. And having this confidence, I know that I shall abide and continue with you all for your furtherance and joy of faith. Now, it's kind of interesting here that when Paul talks about living and dying, and when he speaks about the joy of the present life, that Paul didn't write the same kind of book that Joel Osteen wrote. Joel Osteen's book is Your Best Life Now. And according to him, your best life now is gaining health, wealth, and prosperity. Your best life now is what God can do for you, not what you can do for God. Well, Paul also wrote a book called Your Best Life Now, and it's the book of Philippians. And there's not a single word in the entire book that has anything to do with gaining material wealth. Your best life now does not come from the wealth of the world. So what's Paul's best life now? His best life now is preaching. His best life is teaching. It's bringing these people to maturity. It's not money in your pocket. The best life now is what you know about God. The more that you know about God and the more you increase your intimate fellowship with Christ, that's where you have your best life. And it's, it comes now... It's a good life now, and it's not just all about getting to heaven. Now, this is the one of the things that we really try to do in the teaching ministry of Berean. It's to put Christians above the level where most Christians are living. Most Christians are thinking, what can I do to make more money? Where can I go? What kind of job can I get? How can I make more money? And rarely do you find Christians saying, how can I know Christ better? How can I know him better so I can be content in my life? And this is exactly where Paul is trying to lead them. The more that you know about Christ, the more that you know about his word, the more doctrine that you learn, the more intimate your fellowship with him, the more that you know him, the better off you're going to be and the happier that you will be. And so that's why he's able to write when we get to chapter 4, I have learned whatsoever state I'm in, therewith to be content. So the more that you know about Christ, the more content you will be. And so he wants to stay there with Philippian, the Philippian people to teach them more good doctrine and thereby they would be content. But then there's one other thing that, that I want to mention about Paul's desire for the present life. The fourth reason that Paul desired the present life is to prepare them for what they would face. All of this teaching and all of this labor that he puts in, when, he, when he's working for their faith, it's to get them to the place that they can go through what he would inevitably face. Now, peek down there at verses 29 and 30. We're going to talk about this next week. In verse 29, it says, For unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same conflict which he saw in me and now here to be in me. So Paul may escape this particular prison experience, but the track record for long lives of Christians in the first century was not very good. And it especially wasn't good for apostles and preachers. So the closer that these people get to the Lord, the more influence that they gain in their city, then the worse it bode for the longevity of their lives. So Paul's preparing them for what he was going to face. You see, as people are changed uh, to Christianity, and as people start to get right with God, persecution increases. In Ephesus, you remember, as Paul preached there, people in the city got saved, and as I mentioned on Sunday night, that really rocked the entire financial world of the city of Ephesus. The economy started to be affected by people that were getting saved, and so that caused a riot. 
and they wanted to drive Paul and Christians out of the city. So Christian influence upset things at Ephesus. See, what happens when people get right with God is that those that are peddling vice and corruption, they start to suffer. And when they start to suffer, what do they want to do? They want to get rid of the ones that are destroying their customer base. And so what do they do? They try to get rid of Christians. We see it in our country all the time. I mean, why are people trying to diminish the influence of Christianity? Because it hurts their customers. I mean, it hurts their their pornography. It hurts their vice. It hurts all the things that go on. It hurts the liquor trade. It hurts it all. People, the economy gets hurt in one sense, you might say, when people become Christians. That is, Christians who try to live out their faith. And so they have to be taught their faith must increase or they won't be able to go through what's coming. And you know the sad thing about churches today is there's not enough doctrine being taught. There's not enough truth being taught. There is no increase in the faith. And the consequence of that is Christians do not stand for anything. That's our problem. So, you know, it's interesting. Um, when I, I think it was when, when, when Eric and Ella first came, in, came into the church that we were having lunch and... Uh, I was talking with them, and they said, one of the things Eric said to me, he says, we're surprised to find a church like this still in Sonoma County. And uh, I've got news for everybody. We ain't leaving anytime soon. So for Paul, living and dying is a tough decision. Living has its good points, and you need to see that. Now, let's go on because there's a second part to this, and that is the departure to Paul's future life. Let's go over these things one, these things one more time. The hope of Christ is not to escape the present life. I mean, we're we're not looking at trying to get out of life, but our life right now is to encourage us to serve Christ in a better way. But we still have this reality. To depart and be with Christ is far better. This life is good. It should be for Christians. I mean, we should have a good life here, but the future life is still far better for us. And so that's why Paul has this dilemma. In verse 23, he says, For I am in a strait betwixt two, having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. So the desire to depart is on Paul's mind. We're tempted to look at this and we'll say, Well, Paul says this because he's tired. He's gone through all these things. He's just human. So now he's tired and he's ready to go. And you know, that isn't an uncommon way of interpreting these verses. Paul was just tired. I mean, he was worn out with what he was doing, so he's ready to go. I know better than that. I know better because that kind of idea would lead him to to defeatism. His desire to depart is for higher aspirations than escapism. So why did he want to depart? Well, there is an escape in this. The desire to depart, first of all, is to escape the corruption of sin. He wants to leave the body behind. It's escape that corruption. Now, his, his, his motive is not to get rid of hardships, and it's not to get rid of pains, not to get rid of what he goes through because of the gospel. I mean, he says elsewhere, we know it, and we know this is true, he says, whatever I have to go through for the cause of the gospel, that's okay. And more often than not, the direction he took for the cause of the gospel led him into more troubles and more problems. But he kept, kept, he kept plowing forward with that. So he, he's not trying to escape those kinds of things. That's not why he wants to go to be with Christ. He really wants to escape the corruption of the body. The body has the corruption of sin. You see, he's saved, he has, he's righteous in his spirit, but he's still in the body of corruption. And that's because this body still houses our old nature. So, 
the body has to be redeemed. And Paul says in Romans 7, verse 24, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? And what Paul means is the old nature is still holding on. It's present with us. Uh, There's a struggle that goes on every single day between the old nature and the new nature. And that's because the old nature is not eradicated when we get saved. So Paul is involved in a fight. He was involved in a fight every single day, just like you're involved in a fight. He had to fight the desires of the flesh. So sin, that's still present with us because of the old nature. The old nature is housed in the body. But God has plans for the body. God is going to do something with the body. The body's going to go into the grave. Then one of these days, the, the, the trumpet's going to sound, the shout of the archangel, those bodies will be raised incorruptible. So when the body is raised in incorruption, when all of that's changed, then we'll be glad to get the body back because it will be glorified. And surely, we've been in 1 Corinthians too long talking about the resurrection for any of us not to understand how important the resurrection is to the faith of Christians. There's an expectation that we will get the body back. But for this, at this point, leaving the body for Paul means leaving that body of corruption behind. It goes into the grave, it stays there, and it waits for God to raise it up and to change it. But death for Paul means that he is released from that body of corruption, and that means that he'd be fit to go into the presence of the Lord. There's not one single one of us right now in the body that's fit to be in the presence of the Lord. Now, for sure, this is true, that when you're saved, you're sanctified. You're you're holy in the eyes of God. And should you leave this body just like that? I mean, your spirit is is right at this very moment. No No matter how short of time that you've been saved, your spirit at the very moment that you trust Christ is fit to be in the presence of God. It's sanctified holy, but the body is not. The body still contains the old nature, and so we have to leave it behind when we die. There's no taint of sin. There can be no taint of sin in heaven. No possible way that any sin can enter there. So the body has to be fixed. And so Paul is anxious to leave to leave the corruption of the body, that old man that's in the body. And he wants to go to be with the Lord. So he knows when he dies, he'll immediately be in God's presence. And God will take care of the body later. He'll get it back. Why else is he ready to go? Well, secondly, to reach full conformity to Christ. Even as great as the Apostle Paul was, as learned as he was, as educated, as spiritually mature, as theologically correct as he was, he still was in the process of conformity to Christ. And all of us are in the same shape. Now, he wrote that we are predestined to be conformed to Christ, but that's a work that doesn't get completed in this life. Now, we, uh, we just talked about the body. The body has to be changed, and as we live in here fighting this old nature, we're being fitted, we're being, we're being prepared for the place that we're going. Now, in chapter number 2, he'll say, he says these words, work out your own salvation. And when I, promise, I promise you when we get to that, I'm going to explain to you what that means, and it doesn't mean that we can work for our salvation, but it does mean that we are displaying our salvation more fully as we go through life. We should be. We should be demonstrating a change has taken place. So only heaven and only full redemption of the body is going to complete that process. So Paul's desire is to depart because his body as well as his spirit one day would be made just like the master. So we have lots of encouragements. We have many exhortations to continue in the faith, to strive for the goal of becoming like Christ. 
God is working in us. God is, is, is working in the present life. And it won't be complete. The work that God does won't be complete until we get into the future life. Okay, well, I know some of you are trying to figure out that last thing. It's on your listening sheet. Sometimes you can figure these things out if you listen pretty closely. Uh, I put that last little line in the lesson sheet. Uh, that, that's sometimes it's a summary of what we've been talking about. Sometimes it's a thought that we can think about to end on. But a lot of times it's just to keep you from rattling papers until I get through. So I put it down there at the end. Uh, so you might have already figured out what it is. If you listen very closely, sometimes you can. One day I'm going to put that little statement down there. It's going to have the blanks. And I'm not going to tell anybody what's supposed to go in there. And nobody will put up their lesson sheets until we're ready to go out the door. So, but anyway, I'm going to tell you what that last one is. Maybe you figured it out. The gain in death is not to escape life, but to encourage our service. Paul said, I've decided I can't decide. One is good. This life is good. Living for Christ here is good. The other life is better. But wherever God puts me, that is the place that I want to be. Now, you may be enjoying life right now, and you should if you're a Christian. I mean, this is a good life that we live. And if you are living for Christ, and if you're in the place where God wants you to be, and you're serving as you should, you already know this is a good life that you're living. And it's joyous to be a Christian. But you also know as well that when you leave this life, you're going to a place that's far better. The only decision here is where does God want me to be, here or there, and when he's ready for you, he'll take you home. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much that we could come together tonight. And uh, Lord, help us to have the heart of Paul in these matters. Living or dying, we think about it. And maybe we think that leaving a life would be better. Of course, that it would be. But we want to be happy. We want to be content doing what you'd have us to do right here, right now. And we know, Lord, we can be happy here because your, your life is abiding in us at this very moment. Bless your people tonight in this time of invitation. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.